Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Three of you are doing excellent. That's great. That is so good. That means we can only go up from here, right? Um, like Jason said earlier, my name is Warren Etheridge. I get the privilege and honor of being the BSM director, your BSM director, uh, right across the street at Texas Christian um, University. And I get the unique privilege of um, being a minister that is an extension of you and a lot of the other local Baptist churches here in the Fort Worth area. And because of that, I get to be in a lot of different churches um, from time to time in the area. And one of the things that I always like to point out, because usually I'm, I'm there when the pastor is out, uh, one of the things that I, I always kind of like to bring note of is that you have a phenomenal church staff. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why, but the biggest reason that's on display today um, is it's a, a true testament to leadership um, when the main leader is, is out or a key player in kind of your Sunday morning worship is out and everything runs exactly the way it's supposed to, okay? And so and you know better even than I, as my wife and I moved here in July, we became members December, I think the first week in December, and then had a baby and we're gone for a month. Um, and so I, you guys know even better than I do how efficient and how fruitful and how effective that your church staff is. And because I am a minister, but not on your church staff, I can say those things. If they said those things, it'd be bragging, but I can say those things. Um, and so if you will, just give them a hand. They do a great job every Sunday. And not just Sundays, but the, the rest of the week as well, um, making sure that the ministry that God has given University Baptist Church in Fort Worth to steward um, is carried out. And so they do a great job. And be sure to be sure to thank them um, because that is a difficult job. It doesn't end at five o'clock. So, um, and I would know, I work with college students. So um, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Um, just a quick BSM update. Um, like I said earlier, your BSM across the street, known as TCU, we call it Horn Frog BSM. Um, there's a lot of cool things going on, a lot of cool things happening. Um, for one, we started the semester. It's already January 27th. I can't believe that the first month is gone. It seems like yesterday they were putting Christmas stuff at Walmart, and now Valentine's Day, what's next, Easter? Like, it's, it's already on the run. Um, but some exciting things are happening. For one, we have a student leadership team of about five students that have been tasked and equipped to do evangelism and discipleship missions on campus. Um, and three of those students are on what we call the Texas State Leadership Team. And them and about 70 other students from BSMs across the state of Texas are in the process of creating a um, prayer retreat, um, kind of spring uh, BSM retreat that happens next weekend. And so uh, there's students from representing TCU, representing you guys, that are going to be right outside of Austin next week um, with a group of us. We've had students that have been engaging their fellow peers in gospel conversations and sharing the gospel. I think we've had like 10 gospel conversations since Wednesday. And so students across the street are, are doing big things for the Lord. And so continue to pray for them that students would hear the gospel for the first time. And as we equip students to do evangelism, discipleship, and missions, and not only train them in how to do those things, but train them in how to train others, that we'd see a movement of God happen on TCU's campus. So much so that we could one day look up and see horned frogs spread all over the, the ends of the earth, um, fulfilling the Great Commission to make disciples who make disciples um, and to baptize um, people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit um, and teaching them in the ways that I've commanded you. And surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. It's Matthew 28, which is what we want to see happen all over the world. So the way we say that is we want to um, bring the gospel to the world through TCU's campus. 
Um, and so thank you as a church, one, for letting me be a part of that, for being, letting me be an extension of you onto the college campus. And then specifically for this church, thank you so much for how much you have invested in the group of people, the, the, their own little nation across the street at TCU. Um, from your support and the hosting of different groups here at UBC, from the hosting of us for a lunch as we try to get churches um, in the community involved in campus, you guys have graciously let us use Harris Hall on Tuesdays at noon as we tried that grand experiment out. You guys let us use the college house, especially for me and Jessica, who I work with as an office. Um, you guys have been instrumental in making the transition for me to Fort Worth in July and August, and as the semester rolls on, an easy one. And so I've been telling people kind of all these transitions happened this year for my family and I, between moving, getting two new jobs that we really felt the Lord was asking us to, to finding out we were pregnant, to having a child. Um, we prepared for all of these crazy life transitions and prepared for it to be rough, right? We were like, okay, this is how it's going to go. Um, and the Lord has been faithful and makes every one of those transitions smooth. And one of the biggest ones that my wife and I were concerned about was finding a church home. Um, and you guys have been a welcoming and loving community. And so from the bottom of my heart and from the bottom of my family's heart, thank you. Um, so I, I said there's been a lot that's happened in January, BSM wise, but even for my family, a lot's happened. I think December 3rd, I was here. I filled in for Pastor Jeremiah as he got sick right at the last moment. And so I came and, and spoke December 3rd. December 14th, we had a baby. And so Ren Hazel is, is our daughter, and she's a little over a month old now. So she's here. So if you hear a outburst of life that's probably related to me, okay? So they're chilling at the back for a quick getaway if that has to happen. Um, semester started, things have been rolling, um, and you guys have been busy too. Um, Pastor is, and, and his family are in China um, adopting. I, I'm excited to hear about other families that are adopting as well, and the prayer that we're going to be praying for them, um, and just the adoption process on Wednesday. Um, and what a great week to be preaching over Man made in the image of God. What a week, okay? So, I, I just, if I can be honest, there's a couple things I need to apologize in advance for, okay? One, I have a, a human life I have to take care of now, and that human life likes to wake up about 3.30, okay? Um, and just between, between you and me, okay, we can keep it secret, right? My wife is amazing, but it's really hard for her to do life with missing like chunks of sleep in the middle. And so I've taken the night shifts kind of in the middle. Um, and Sarah's been really gracious and our daughter's been really gracious to sleep through most of it. It's been pretty fantastic. Um, but I've been up since really early and I am excited and on high on coffee this morning. Okay, so if I speak too quickly, I apologize. Okay, another thing I need to apologize for, I didn't do this on December 3rd, is usually the context that I speak in and teach are college students. And so a lot of the times the best way to help college students understand a concept is to Socratically ask questions. So kind of lead questions in a way. And so there may be a point this morning where I ask you a question and I realize that you're not going to answer it, okay? Just give me three seconds, I'll figure it out, and we'll, I'll answer the question for us, okay? Um, and then last but not least, on a more serious note, today we're going to be covering Genesis 2, um, specifically verses 4 through 17. So if you want to turn all the way over to like page 4 in your Bible to cover that, you can. Um, but on a serious note, the, the text that we're looking at today is weighty. We're talking about God forming man, creating man in his own image, um, putting him over, the, kind of dominion over the rest of his created things. And so the weight of the text that we're looking at today um, is a heavy one. 
and if I can be really honest and vulnerable, it's, it's one that I don't feel really qualified to speak on. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to wade through this morning. We're going to be careful about what we say, about what God has said in the first couple of chapters of Genesis as we look at his creation that um, Pastor Jeremiah and Brian last week covered really, really well and thoroughly. And so um, we're really excited to, to wade through this. Um, but I'm going to go ahead. Yeah, we'll go ahead and do this. Okay, I hadn't made that decision yet, but we just did. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give you my outline, okay? So if you're a type A note taker, you're welcome. Here we go, okay? We're covering three things. Um, man is created, man in the image of God, and then this is the deepest point. What in the world do we do with it, okay? So those are three things we're covering. Um, as we jump into this, it is a heavy text, so I'm going to pray for us if that's all right with you guys. Well, I've got the mic, so it's going to have to be all right with you guys. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive right into Genesis 2. So let pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak on your word this morning. God, I thank you for this gathering of believers um, in this place. I thank you for University Baptist Church and, Lord, how they have invested into the harvest field like Luke 10 to um, says, God, that they would see workers from the harvest come out of the harvest and be implemented, trained, and equipped, and sent back into the harvest. Lord, I pray that UBC would be a place where we send to the nations. Um, and as my role as a BSM director, God, I pray that some of those that we'd send would come from the harvest field of TCU. Um, Lord, that you would equip um, and call out those who you want to serve um, into the context that we don't know yet. God, as we read this morning Genesis 2, God, I pray that you would, would speak, um, that it wouldn't be my words, but it'd be your words. And Lord, as we look at the way that you shaped us and you made us, God, that we would walk out of here in awe, forever changed because of the intentionality that you had with us. So Lord, you are good, and we just pray all these things in your name. Amen. So we're in Genesis 2, verse 4. I asked you to turn to it, and then I didn't myself, so give me just a second. Now this is a little bit different teaching style for me. One of the things, and I realize that you guys have never met any of my family, uh, but I was telling them kind of in our mic check, pre-check, they need me to talk about something. My family, the Etheridges, we have this stigma, or maybe a stereotype, but it's an accurate stereotype, that we like to talk a lot, okay? And so we, we kind of ramble on and on. In fact, at Thanksgiving, it's, there's certain like, parts of the, the family meal that you want to kind of avoid because it could be a conversation that would cut into our family domino game that happens afterwards, right? And that's important at Thanksgiving. And so um, Etheridges tend to drone on, but one of the things we do is we are storytellers. I love to tell stories. And I think there's actually, um, I'm just saying, like throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus tells stories all the time, okay? So when I'm telling stories, I'm just trying to be as much like Jesus as I can be. Um, but a lot of times when I teach, I like to, to sit in a passage um, and tell the story of what's happening. So when the, in, I think, December 3rd, I think I covered uh, the calling of the fishers of men. I think it's in Luke 4. And so, like, I like to sit in Luke 4, look around me as we travel around Lake Gennesaret when Jesus sails across to the other side and he gets to the other side and there's 5,000 people that need to be fed. Man, what was it like to sit in the audience and sit around with hungry people who didn't, even though they were hungry, didn't bring food and didn't really care that much because they were so enamored with the teaching of this man who spoke like he, he had authority over the scriptures. Not like the teachers in their synagogues, but like someone who knew Someone that had power to speak into those things. What was it like to sit in those crowds? What did they notice? What did they see? 
So everything I, I, I think through and when I read the, the word for myself, I picture it as a story that's unfolding right in front of us. And this morning we, we sit in a different story. We, we sit in a story where there's not people sitting around and hearing these things for the first time. It's a story of how the earth was created, how man was created. And so, as we hit Genesis 2, um, let's read. What we'll do today is we'll read all of 4 through 17. So we'll read it all in one chunk. And then we'll kind of come back and highlight certain verses as we go, okay? So, if you will, read with me Genesis 2, 4 through 17. Here we go. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So up to this point, we'd seen this, the day this creation happen. Um, and in fact, the first three verses of chapter 2 are, in, are the, the text talking about the day of rest that, that God takes after the first six days of creation. And so starting in verse 4, he revisits day 6 where he made man and um, in greater detail. So, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided it and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivala, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gehom. And it is the one that flowed around the land, the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Forgive me if I mispronounced any of those, okay? Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so we end up at the end of verse 17 looking towards the future and towards the, um, what would later be known as the fall. Um, and that's something that will be covered in the next couple weeks. And we even um, start even looking towards the creation of Eve and how God created man and woman. Um, but I believe that's even covered next week by Pastor Jeremiah after he gets back. And so we're just looking at the creation of man, which holds a lot of importance for us, right? As part of mankind, we're looking at our origins. We're looking at where God started us, started our story in the, the midst and the overarching theme of his story. And don't, don't, how do I say this? Don't make the mistake of reading something, reading the word, reading the Bible, and understanding it as a story to us. It is. It's a story to you, but it's a story to tell the overarching story of, of God's story in the midst of it. So even the coming of Christ in the later text, in fact, if you, if you don't know anything about your Bible, um, or maybe the Bible or church is new to you, um, the Bible is kind of divided into two parts. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, starting with the creation story that we've covered the last couple weeks, um, and leading up to God choosing his people Israel and saying, Israel, I will be your God if you will have no other gods before me. 
Israel says, okay, they make a promise and a covenant with God, and right around they turn around and have other gods before him. Sometimes it was other idols from neighboring countries. Sometimes it was their own other values that they placed over and more important than the Lord. But each time the creator of the universe, God, all-knowing, all-powerful, watched his people run away from them, and instead of turning his back on them, which he had every right to do, would call them back to himself. He would win them back. They'd be oppressed by a different nation, and he would free them. We see that in Exodus and with the powerful nation of Egypt was over in charge of the Israelites. God pulls them back. And that story happens over and over and over again in the Old Testament, leading right up into the New Testament when God, in his ultimate pursuit of Israel, his ultimate pursuit, sends his son and said, not only have I freed you from the enslavement of other nations, I've freed you from the enslavement of sin, this imperfection that has plagued you since Genesis 3, which will be covered in the next couple weeks. And through Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, who lived a perfect life, served as the sacrifice, um, sacrifice for that sin because of his perfect life um, and his resurrection, there was an invitation for everyone, not just the nation of Israel, to be a part of the family of God. And then after the four gospel accounts, which tell the stories of Jesus, um, the rest of the New Testament is people who walked, the first disciples, the first leaders of the church, looking back and saying, this is what Jesus said, and this is how he lived. And this is how we implement those things both individually, but also corporately as, as a church. And so when we look at Genesis 2, uh, we're looking at the creation, we're the start of where our story begins in a, in a smaller part of God's overarching story through creation. So the first thing that we have to notice is that sometimes throughout Scripture, God does something that doesn't make sense, okay? Now, there's tons of times where this happens. I think, uh, for one, when we talked in December 3rd about um, God inviting the, these first disciples to be fishers of men, it didn't make sense, right? He invited them into something greater. But why in the world would an all-knowing, all-powerful God need people to do his work? And the reality is he doesn't, but he invites us to be a part of it anyway. I think there's times when we look to those examples of God doing something that doesn't quite make sense, and we dive into those parts of the text, we see something for ourselves and we learn something about what God was doing. So the first time that happens in Genesis 2 is when God forms the man. So Genesis 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Up to this point, for the, the other six days of creation, when God created something, he just spoke it into being. Now, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in December or not, but I graduated from Tarleton State University over in Steenville, Texas, just uh, about an hour and 15 minutes south of here. Um, and my degree was actually in biomedical science. So I'm a pre-med guy um, who got too late and too far into the program before God said, hey, I want you to do this. And so I couldn't change to something easier. Okay, so I spent a lot of times in a chemistry lab uh, to be a minister of the gospel on college campus, right? Um, but I've always been fascinated with how intricately and perfectly the human body is designed. Okay, you can look at all of creation. There's some amazing things when you look at creation on a cellular level. Everything from the wood that makes up this altar and the chairs and the backdrop here um, to the, the living and breathing creatures around us, including ourselves. God was very intricate in everything that he did. Um, my dad was, well, is, not was. My dad is an optometrist in Brownwood, Texas. It's where I grew up and spent my days. 
And I was always fascinated with the eye. As, a, as an eye doctor, I was around that a lot. I also am blind as a bat. Without my contacts, I can't distinguish between my fingers. So I've saved a lot of money by my dad being an eye doctor. I'm just saying, Lord knows, okay? Um, but even the eye by itself would be one of the highest and most technological pieces of technology if it was something we could hold in our hand like a phone. Rod and cone cells that distinguish between red light and green light and blue light all respond at the same time, sending electrical impulses through the optic nerve all the way to your eye where it's met by the other optic nerve of the other eye and they crisscross, turning the image upside down. It's translated by your, one of the regions of your brain which takes that image from thousands and thousands of rod and cone cells, interprets it all as one picture with depth, if you can see out of both your eyes, or at least as long as you have two eyes, perceives it with depth, flips the image over, and then tells your brain what you're seeing. Thousands and thousands and thousands of electrical impulses every millisecond interpret what light is bouncing off of in this room so that you can tell what it is. God created that out of nothing. Okay, It's not like when man creates something in our chemistry lab, when we create a new element or when we do an experiment that Um, gives us oxygen out of two other things, we always take something that was already created um, and then we mix it together, we add heat, and we add other things that have already been created to get something new. But whereas God, when he spoke, things happened out of nowhere. It wasn't like he took matter and made it into something else like we do. He literally spoke and it was there. It appeared. So when he said, let there be light, there'd never been light before. There'd never been an idea or a concept as light. But when God spoke and said, let there be light, light appeared from him, okay? So when we get to Genesis 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, you have to stop and take note. Why didn't God just speak us into existence? Um, Kevin did a great job in the children's sermon of kind of like highlighting this first note here. And so the first thing we see, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. That formed is an important word. Let me get this to my mouth instead of my, under my chin so you can hear me swallow, okay? The Lord God formed. Now, that word formed is not just a through onto a canvas, right? Formed kind of has this connotation of molded or shaped. It's the same word in the original language as the word that they use when a potter forms a clay pot. Okay, so he steps to steps up to the clay and already has in mind what he wants to shape it into. There's intentionality to it. It's, it's not random. It's not by chance. I'm a terrible artist, so the only art I can make that aren't stick figures or weirdly shaped snakes are throwing art onto a canvas, right? Like an abstract kind of art. My mother-in-law is an art teacher, and so I already know that I would fail that class if I was in it. But that's not how God approached the canvas as he made us. It was intentional. It was formed. There we go. It was intentional. It was formed. Um, Now, in the previous section, in Genesis 1, chapter 24, up to this point, and I'll just read it for for us, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So in everything else that, that God had done up to this point, he said, Let the earth bring forth. But when it got to mankind... He formed it. God stepped in and did something specific. Not to say that he wasn't over everything else that he created. That's not what I'm saying at all. But God intentionally with mankind formed it himself. 
And then not only that, but he breathed life into it, which is our next section. Now, when you talk about kind of this idea of the, the potter, that motif or that theme is kind of seen throughout the rest of the Bible as well. Um, just for example, Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand, which is where we get the, the classic hymn, Mold Me and Make Me. Um, I am the potter, you are the clay. And many of us saying that as little kids, if you grew up in kind of the, the traditional church like I did. Um, but then even in Jeremiah 18, um, when Jeremiah, who's a prophet for the nation of Israel, uh, went to a pot, was asked by the Lord to go to a potter's house, and he saw a clay pot that had become misshapen. Um, and the, it was an example of what the Lord can do with the nation Israel, because as that pot was misshapen, the potter shaped it into something different. So even though it was designed a certain way, and it kind of got out of whack because of sin in the world, it was reshaped another way. This potter motif keeps coming more and more to the surface throughout the scriptures. But not only was formed important in the verse 7, that breathed life is as well. Um, and again, we ask the same question. If God can speak things into existence, why does he take the time to breathe life? He didn't really need to do that. He's an all-powerful, all-knowing God. Why did he take the, example, like the time to breathe life into mankind, his creation, into Adam? Um, and there's a lot of different explanations to that, and you, could, you can dive into that, but I'm not going to this morning. Um, the reality is, verse 7, when he says that, and breathe, life into his nostrils, uh, and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It wasn't until God breathed into Adam that he became a living creature. Sure, he was matter and all those thousands of rods and cone cells in his eyes that we were just talking about a while ago, they were all present. But it wasn't until the breath of life that God breathed that he became a living creature. The source of our life is God. No matter what we look at, no matter what we believe, um, no matter whether you acknowledge that God is your creator, he is the one that sustains us. The very oxygen we breathe was created by God. And in fact, if I can get even deeper into that, um, the very oxygen that's provided by plants who are using the carbon dioxide that we exhale and the, the natural nitrogen and carbon dioxide that's in the, the atmosphere is creating oxygen to sustain our life because God made it so. Our source of life originates in every way, shape, and form from the Father. Our source of life originates in every shape and form from God breathing life into us. And this separates us from all other creatures on the earth. Okay, we're going to talk about the animals in just a second. Um, but I want to tell you a quick story first. I've already kind of spilled the beans and told you I'm a story guy. Um, I grew up in early Texas, as I said a while ago. I mean, one of the, my biggest regrets as a child, and I hope my mom sees this, my biggest regret as a child is we never had a pet. Okay. So, my, uh, my family grew up, we lived right in the middle of town. I, early is a small town, most of you probably have never heard of it. It's a small town, I graduated with about 70 people, and we lived right next to the school. So, like, we lived in town, um, and I was about a five-minute walk from school. And so we always wanted pets, and we never had pets. We had cats for a very short time, but that was only because we had a mice problem. We needed the cats to bounce out the mice, and my mom doesn't do mice, and so that was it. And my parents were really loving and supportive and everything, 
but pets was where we put the foot down. And it's because, and I'm figuring this out now that I have children, my mom had an extremely sensitive nose, okay? Um, nose that could point out um, when we hadn't done laundry or we had left clothes in our room for too long that needed to go to the laundry room, um, but also a nose that could detect when cat poop had been trailed into the house, okay? And we had carpet, mistake one, okay? And there is, even to this day, my neighbors, my parents' neighbors have a cat that my, my parents have affectionately called Poopy Cat because that's what all he does in their yard. Um, and so it drove my mom crazy. My mom's a very calm, even temper. I mean, she, she's just a really warm, loving lady until she gets cat poop in her, in her house, okay? And then everything's off. All bets are off. And as she, like, grinds in and into the carpet trying to clean it out, you can just tell that this is a source of anger and frustration for my mother, okay? So we used to say, hey, every Christmas, it was like, hey, what do you want for Christmas? I'd really like a dog. I'd really like a dog. And it was like, no, we're not getting a dog. Maybe if we move to the country. And my parents knew that they weren't going to move to the country anytime we were in school. Um, we'll get a dog when we move to the country. That was kind of the, the put-off for a while, okay? Um, and finally, when I got old enough and kind of became a teenager and started getting a little bit of sassiness, I know that none of our teenagers here have any sort of sarcasm in their bones at all because they're such awesome students. But um, when I started becoming a teenager and got a little sassy, I used to tell my mom, well, okay, we can't have a dog. How come? She'd say, well, it's because they poop in the yard. And that was the reason. Well, I can clean it up. No, I, I know better than that. Like, they, they'll poop in the yard. I was like, okay, mom, what if I poop in the yard? And without, without missing a beat, she was like, well, we'll just get rid of you. Like, it's no big deal. I said, okay. And so, um, long story short, we never got a dog. Um, my wife and I went to college at Tarleton State University, graduated, got married two days later. Um, I started working at the BSM. I lived two blocks away from campus. I lived closer to my classes after I graduated college than when I did when I was in college and lived on campus, literally. Not a joke. I lived closer to the science building than my dorm as a college student. Um, but one of the bad things about that house is we both really wanted a dog. My wife has grown up with animals, um, and I, the only animals I've grown up with are cattle and those two cats for a short period of time. Um, but one of the deals about this house, it was really cheap rent, but we couldn't have animals there, which is totally fine for the sake of the gospel. We're not going to get a dog. Well, January of last year, 2018, um, my wife and I had been trying to have um, children for a while. I decided that the Lord had told us no, that this was not going to happen at this time at least. And so um, my landlord comes out of nowhere and said, hey, you guys have been excellent tenants. Um, really love and respect you. Uh, have great conversations. Um, I think it's okay if y'all want to get a dog, you can. And it was like the heavens had opened. And it was like, this is the moment. Uh, we can get a dog. And then I swear, a week later, someone through the grapevine had heard that we could have a dog, and they were like, hey, I've got this guy, and he's got Australian shepherd puppies. They're full-blood Australian shepherd puppies, um, and they're completely free because there's no paperwork on them. It's just kind of a freak thing. And I was like, the Lord has spoken. Okay, let's get a dog. So we got a dog, and literally not four weeks later, we found out we were pregnant. And then literally not two months later, we found out the Lord was asking us to move. And then literally, not two weeks later, we're like, because we have a dog, we can't have an apartment in Fort Worth. So we have this dog. He's an Australian shepherd. And about, as of like this week, he's like one year old, okay? And that dog has been, we called him the tiny terrorist for a long time. There's certain things I'm figuring out that the Lord in his infinite wisdom and mercy like made animals age and mature differently than, uh, than humans. Um, because if my daughter, if Wren at the age of one can run as fast as my dog, we're all in trouble, Okay? Um, I cannot outrun my dog anymore. Um, he's a 65-pound one-year-old um, who loves to jump, 
and meet everybody with his mouth, okay? So if you've got any Australian Shepherd tips for how to quit, stop them from mouthing, it'd be great. But my dog has also been a great source of joy and excitement in our life as well. So one of the things, excuse me, sorry. One of the things that's been awesome about having a dog is when we moved here to campus, um, there's, because I'm a director, there's certain things that I'm going to miss weekends for. And my wife, who was seven months pregnant, I, I just really felt uncomfortable even by herself. And we hadn't met you guys yet. We hadn't made a lot of friends yet um, in Fort Worth. And so um, one of the things that made me more comfortable being gone for a day or two days at a time was that the dog was there. And my dog was very protective of Sarah. Um, as she was pregnant and stuff like that. Not in an aggressive, weird way, um, but he would sit by her at all times. Um, and then when I was gone, he was very wary of who was at the door. So he would sit by the door and wait to see if it was someone he knew or not every time the doorbell rang. And we're pretty sure, not 100% convinced, um, but there was one time the doorbell rang and he wouldn't even let Sarah get to the door. He like barked, he was upset. And I think it was one of those political surveyors about the time uh, that the... the, the uh, um, the voting was going on. So he's okay in my book. I'm sorry if that was you. But uh, he keeps political people away from our house too. Um, but here's the deal. He's a fantastic dog. Um, and I call it Man Mondays. He's the only other male in my house. Now it's my wife and a daughter and the two of us. So I call him Male Mondays because I'm the morning person in our house. Um, and he like lays at my feet and keeps them warm while I'm like studying the Bible or drinking coffee or whatever that looks like. But for all those things and how much I really appreciate and value my dog, my dog will always be the last member of my family, no matter what. On paper, on paper, the dog actually contributes more to our family than Rin does, my month and a couple week old daughter, okay? Ollie, our dog's name, um, Ollie doesn't cry at night. Ollie is trained to poop outside, which is fantastic, by the way. Um, Ollie protects my wife. And if I really, really needed to, I think I could hook him up to something and generate electricity from how much he runs or uh, get him to pull a wagon or something. He contributes more to my family um, than I would even say sometimes I do, okay? But at the end of the day, I will never take a bullet for my dog. Whereas my wife and my daughter and even some close friends, I will take a bullet for before I took a bullet for my dog. And the only reason is he is not made in the image of God. Because of our status as humans, and again, whether or not you believe in God or you believe in that there is no God, the fact that you are created in God's image makes you of infinite, infinite more value than any creature on earth that's not. And as much as I appreciate and my value my dog, and, and some people, sometimes people have trouble with this, um, for how much I value my dog, he will never take the place of a person in my family. If I had to trade someone or, or if I had to, uh, let's say, if I, even an unborn child, if there was some sort of scenario where I had to get rid of my dog because an unborn child's um, life depended on it, it's an automatic decision the dog has to go. Which puts even more context on it because the unborn child isn't bringing any value to my family yet from certain perspectives. But it's an automatic every time. The creature made in God's image trumps anything else, any other creature in the world. But for a lot of us in a society, and we'll talk about this in a second, but that's not the case. I think there's sometimes we 
have traded, as Romans 1.20 says, we've traded the, the creator for his creation sometimes. And so sometimes those, um, whether it's animals or any other, like plants or anything like that, sometimes those can elevate status over other humans, um, f- other humans in our lives. But even the most deplorable, even the most criminal person um, who we would say in, in our pride and selfishness, who we would say is beyond the hope of saving, which we know that's not true because of who God is, but even people that we view as criminal, not, um, not recoverable, is still of more value than Ollie, my dog. And not just because he bites me on occasion, okay? It's because humans are made in the image of God, while Ollie is not. Which transitions us right into the next section. As mankind, we are made in God's image. Um, and that comes with a lot of different things. For one, there's a, an idea of kingship involved. Now that made in God's image comes from chapter 1 um, in verse 27, um, where it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And I'm actually going to read verse 28 as well, if you want to read it with me. And God blessed them, and God said to the earth, Oh, and God said to them, excuse me, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so as people made in God's image, we have um, several different roles. And one of those is this role of kingship, okay? Now, in ancient, kind of the ancient times that this story was being told to people, um, there was this idea that if a nation conquered another land or, or conquered an area, they were to erect a statue of their king and put him on as representation of our king rules this area. Um, and so that's what happened. So when they heard the story, they ad- immediately identified that God, as the ruler of this place, put someone in his image there to tend it, to watch over it, to be there. And so there's this idea of being a king over that area, but every king has something under his rule, right? Every kingdom is a stewardship. Every king has a people that he stewards over. And throughout history, we've seen good and bad examples of that stewardship, okay? And even in modern day, depending on what country you're looking at, there could be argued that there's good stewardship and bad stewardship in those different policies. Um, But as mankind, what are we to rule over? Um, One of those things is the dominion over um, the world around us, over the animals. And so I'm going to read a short quote from a book called Old Testament Theology. It's by Dr. P.R. House, um, or he did this section said, human beings occupy a unique place among the creatures. They alone are made in the image and likeness of God. They alone are told to rule and subdue the earth, a command that seems to explain, at least in part, what God's image means. Like God, human beings have the capacity to make decisions that affect the earth and its inhabitants positively or negatively. The whole earth is given to sustain them in chapters 1, 29 through 30, rather than vice versa. Yet, Obviously, wise rulership will be necessary for humans to draw sustenance from the land. At this point in Genesis, there is no reason to expect anything but wise rulership. Simply put, humans are God's representatives on earth. Um, Now, as people that have stewardship of the things that God has given us, we have to identify what is God's. And the answer is a hard one for us as prideful humans beings to swallow because there's nothing in our life that we own, okay? Even if you take yourself and you say, man, my gifts and talents, I've worked hard. Some people are athletic buffs, so they say, man, I've worked out hard to have these muscles and to be able to lift this much. And that may be kind of an absurd example for us, so let's put it in a different way. Um, Man, I worked really hard for this money, okay? Um, But in in reality, who is the one that gave us the ability to work? 
Who is the one that gave us the ability to communicate things? Who is the one that gave us the ability to lift things with our muscles? Everything that we have in life, everything that we have the ability to do, all traces back to God giving it to us in the first place. So there's not a single part of any part of our lives that we can lay claim to as our own. Sure, we can say that we steward what God gave us well to make more that we have in our possession as stewards, but it's still God's. So as kings, over the small parts of land that God has given us, over the small parts of our life that God has given stewardship of, um, what do we glorify? Do we point back to the one that gave it to us, or do we raise up small, tiny K kingdoms for ourselves? That's a question that we have to ask throughout life. So whether it's um, animals, whether it's plants, whether it's um, value, whether it's relationships, each thing that God has given us is to be cultivated to bring glory to God. And if it brings glory to anything else, we've missed the mark of what it means to be made in God's image, to point back to our creator. Now, there's one other thing I want to talk about before we get into the application, and we'll, we'll kind of put a bow on this um, as we talk about Genesis 2. But specifically in Genesis 2.20, a little bit past 17 where we stopped, um, God gives the, delegates the authority to name the animals to Adam, which I've always found fascinating because the Lord God, as you've already heard me say 8 billion times already, you're probably getting tired of me saying, the Lord could have done it without us. He's the one that created language. And when a little bit later in Genesis, when the Tower of Babel happens and nobody can speak the same language, God had already thought up and programmed those languages into those people. He didn't need someone to name the animals, but he delegated the authority to Adam to let him be a part of his creative work. And not just naming the animals, he got to be a part of naming things. And throughout the Bible, naming things are important to God. So not even to talk about Genesis 1, where he literally speaks things into existence and then names them, such as light or the heavens or the earth. He names all those things. We get to the animals, and God lets Adam name them. But let's talk about what happens later. uh, God changes the name of several things throughout the course of the Bible. He changed the name of Abraham and Sarah, Jacob. He changed the name Israel, Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul. Everything that he did was a rerouting of a person's destiny, of a rerouting of a person's definition every time he named something. So when you look at Jacob, a man whose life had been characterized by the deception of his twin brother, who had stolen the birthright the very Jesus would come through later, he stole that for himself. All of a sudden, he changes, God changes Jacob's name to Israel and says, through you, I will be a blessing to all nations. So the very man whose life was defined by deception all of a sudden is one that gives life. One that was defined by deception is now going to bring forth Jesus, the purveyor of truth. For Peter, someone, one of my favorite characters of the Bible, because I relate to him a lot, who was inconsistent, loudmouth, always sticking his foot in his mouth, Peter, Saul, or Simon at the time, um, name has changed to Peter, a name that means rock. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. Rock, this idea of consistency, something that can be built upon. Peter, Simon at the time, whose life was full of inconsistencies, is all of a sudden named consistent. And then don't even get me started on Saul, who basically was known as the killer of this early movement called the Way, which we would call the church now, um, went from Saul of Tarsus, who killed Christians, to Paul, the writer of most of our New Testament. In the naming of things, God gives this this amazing 
um, delegation of authority to Adam to name the creatures that he has made, to let him be a part of the creative process. I got to hear a talk one time from the owner, the kind of creator of Pixar, our favorite Toy Story, The Incredibles, all those stories. I know everyone's got their own favorite Pixar movie, and he gave this great talk. He's not a believer, um, but gave this great talk at this leadership summit that I was at. And the following guy that got up said, you know, I've always thought that when people are creating things, they most look like their creator, who is defined by the things that he created in the very beginning. Mankind's creation of ideas and concepts point back to the creator himself. And so, as Adam created the names, he had a small taste of what it meant um, to be a reflection of who God is. So, all this to say, what do we do with it? We've looked at God breathing and forming us and the intentionality with which he made us. He breathed life into us so that nothing that we can claim as our own actually comes from us. It has to come from the creator of the universe, the creator of the cosmos, the creator of everything that we can see, breathe, touch, taste, and any other thing that you can think of. We're made in God's image as kings who have things to steward and to steward well that point back to the original creator. What do we do with all of it? And the reality is that we live in a world where the image of God is under attack. And now don't, don't fly off the handle when I say under attack and, and figure that in response to an attack that we need to form together and, and keep the other people out or maybe draw our swords and take a mountain kind of like Peter did when um, the Roman guards came to get Jesus and swiped off the ear of one of the high priest's servants or whatever. That's not what God's asked us to do. In fact, throughout Jesus' life in the Gospels, there's only a few times throughout Scripture that, any, that something that he does could possibly be perceived as, as aggressive. I think of Colossians 4, 6 that talks about, um, may your words be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you'll know how to respond to each person. But the idea that the image of God is something that's being forgotten or something that's coming under attack is, is not wrong. Because the reality is our stewardship as mankind has not always been one that positively affected things. Um, you can look to the news. You can look to your news feed if you're a social media person. Um, and you can quickly see that the world is very broken. And what a week to talk about people that are made in the image of God, right? I mean, Monday we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, who um, obviously whose life was characterized by his resistance to, to people not being treated as equal just because of their skin color. And I think it's safe to say that there's still racism in the world today. There's racism even in America where we try to avoid some of the awkwardness of looking too long in, in certain directions where things are, are badly taking place um, because of judgments based on skin tone. Not to mention the rest of the world where we still have genocides like you think of World War II, Rwanda. These things are not in our long distance past. They're in our immediate past. They're still happening today. They just haven't taken place on a large enough scale where we notice them. So judgments based on people that, because of their skin color, because of what they believe, aren't viewed as the same as us. Um, we haven't been good stewards of people made in the image of God. Not to mention um, trafficking of humans. Um, even in the United States, uh, you can look in your bulletin. That's, we have an emphasis on that this month. Um, you can make donations to that. There's some really good examples of that in the bulletin. Um, but guys, this is what's taking place right behind us. These things are taking place in our backyards. People that are viewed as less than. People that are viewed as objects, not as human souls, not as people made in the image of God. 
Um, and then there's even harder topics to talk about. And because we have young years, I'll, I'll word it a, a specific way and encourage you as parents. I won't word it in a way that it'll bring up conversations you're not ready to have. Um, but there's, there's a whole market, a huge market of the, of the popu- of a business that where you can watch people have intimate relations with people for entertainment. And as a church, as a collective capital C church, we haven't talked about it much. Um, but the statistics on this are staggering. When I was being ordained as a, a minister before I moved from Stephenville, um, I got to sit down with a, a group of deacons at our church, at Valley Grove Baptist Church in Stephenville. And I was really privileged to know most of these guys. I'd sat down and had meals with most of them over the course of the time that I was at Tarleton um, and lived in Stephenville. And one of them, so the, the ordination process was a really special one because it was an affirmation, but it was also a, an asking of questions as to, hey, as someone that works with the next generation of believers, the next generation of deacons, the next generation of pastors, what do you see as a, a problem coming down the pipe? And it was an easy question. It's like, well, this, 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 inter- this entertainment section um, is the worst thing because statistics are scary. Um, there's statistics released several years ago from a group um, that said that nine out of every ten men, uh, every, nine out of every ten men um, have an addiction to this entertainment field. Um, and not even nine out of ten, but one out of every four women also have a, a difficulty as well, view it more than once a month. Um, not only that, one of the leading business owners in that entertainment section is an internet site, released their statistics, like their own in-house data. And this isn't like a religious group. This is a purveyor of this industry, uh, released their own in-house statistics. And there was enough um, intimate relations viewed around the world for every person in the world to watch four hours of it in a year. Every person in the world. It's close to eight billion. Not just people with internet. Every person in the world. And so as we sit where in an industry where um, people are stripped of the image of God and they're just seen as objects to derive pleasure from, um, the reason that that's the, the biggest obstacle to tomorrow's leaders and tomorrow's spiritual Christians in the church is because all of a sudden this is taking place and reshaping how we define um, love, how we define interactions, um, and it's happening under our noses. And because it's an internal thing, we're losing the men in our church churches across the world and nobody knows it and nobody wants to address it. And as we sit in front of our TVs and as in front of our computers, um, our families are being discipled um, and trained and equipped, but it's not through the Bible, it's through the media. It's through what's accepted, which is a scary thought. And so it's really easy to understand as people view things of that nature um, why it's really easy for people to jump to the conclusion that people are just objects. They're not souls to be taken care of, which makes it even easier to understand why a state can pass a law where you can forfeit a child before it's born. Because if the value of a soul is what they can give to you, an unborn child doesn't. And this is not the first time in human history that's happened. In Exodus, we saw um, the Pharaoh rise up, and out of a fear of the growing nation, number of the Israelites in his nation, he said, we will kill all the men under the age of two. And it happened. And there's a scary thing to think about that, is because it's not Pharaoh's men that are going from door to door and reporting the crying babies that are crying next door. It was the people. 
And then it happens again in the Gospels when King Herod hears that there's a different king of the Jews coming, even though that's his title. He gets nervous and out of fear commands that all boys under the age of two be killed and put to death in the Israelite nation. It's done. At both times, God was at work and God spared lives. But in the midst of that, we find ourselves in a similar situation where life is, is not because of, life is not valued because of people made in God's image, um, but because of what they can give to you. And in a world where the gospel is defined as Jesus laying down his life for you, um, which makes us pump the question of how can I lay down my life for others, we find ourselves hearing a different narrative of how can your life be laid down for me. And so as the church, we're called to love. We're called to um, speak truth where it is, not just because it's a social justice issue, but because it's people made in the image of God are suffering. And the how and the why of that's difficult because the times and the scenarios are difficult. But I think in Mark 2, of Jesus approaching a village, and this is as the band comes up, we'll close with this. Um, But Jesus in Mark 2 approaches a village, and there's a man on the outside. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Because there's this man, he's crying out, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, and he's stained by leprosy, and there's all this outward um, deterioration of who he is as a person. But Jesus, the Son of God, looks out and heals him. And a man who was cast out of his village, out of his town, um, was healed by the Son of God and made clean. But because of that, you see this first symbolism of, of God going to the cross for us and taking our place. The man who was once cast out of a village because of his uncleanliness, because of his contagion, um, takes the place of Jesus. is accepted and celebrated in the town he was once cast out of, but out of fear, cast Jesus out. So as a people who are broken, we look towards the Son and we look towards God and we look towards um, Genesis that says we're created in the image of God. How can we as God's people love in the places where love is hard to to define? How can we speak out about what the the things that are done to people around us? How can we be the hands and feet of Christ in a, a situation that's difficult? And that's not a call to a corporate group. That's a call to the individual as well. What are What are you supposed to do? because we're created in the image of God. I'm going to pray for us, and then Matt's going to lead us in worship. I'm sorry we went a little long, but thanks for riding with me as we walk through one of the heavier parts of Scripture this morning. So let me pray for us. God, I'm so honored, Lord, that you breathe life into us, that you form us with an idea in mind, and that idea looks and and takes a lot of different shapes and forms and skin colors and personalities and um, talents and abilities. God, you are a creative God. There is no doubt. God, thank you for breathing life into us, for making us in your image. But Lord, as we live in, in a culture, in a world where that changes definitions often, um, God, I pray that we would hold on to you and to you alone. Lord, that we would define the way that we view the world by your scriptures, not the way we view the scriptures by our viewing of the world. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help shape our life more and more like you at all times. Lord, we weep for the brokenness around us. But God, I pray that our response would not be one of, of anger or resentment, but God, love for the broken. God, I pray that we value life 
in all of its shapes and forms. God, I pray that we'd value those who are made in the image of you. Lord, we pray all these things in your name.